privilege to have my father-in-law, Esther's father, Brother Schultze here. Uh, before we begin, I just want to know we have two uh, little units called SoundMates for those who may be hearing impaired, and it's a wireless device. You can put one earbud in your ear if you're not ashamed to raise your hand and say you need one. Raise your hand and say you need one, you know, and we'll get you to it. I tried one out and it doesn't have any static, and uh, we we got that fixed. So we have some hearing assistance. If you could, if that would be of a help to you, just uh, I'll keep my eye peeled. And when you do that, I'll somebody will come running up with one. All right.
My name is Esther Morey, and I'm so pleased to be the daughter of Reimer Schultze, a Holocaust survivor, a man of God, a man who raised us with love and with hope. I never remember him yelling at us one time. Isn't that amazing? And he has paved a path through his life and his choices of how to handle suffering. He's paved a path for all of us children and for all of us who are in, in the sound of his story that there is so much beauty that can come up out of our suffering if we just let God help us with it. So the power of hatred is great, but the power of love and forgiveness even more. So with no other ado, I would like to introduce to you my father, Reimer Schultz. Good evening. Are you excited? I'm scared. I don't want to fail God in this sacred assignment of sharing my story with you. So I'm happy to be in wonderful, wild West Virginia. And before I get started, I'd like you to meet my wife. Would you please stand, Marsha? I found her. I found her on a gravel road in the Rocky Mountains 54 years ago. And she's been a honey to me ever since that time. So uh, we raised our children on uh, one hour of television a week, and I was at the controls. I'm a German. <laughs> and the most favorite movie we watched is entitled Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> In this movie, you see hundreds of uh, children being prisoners in a Bulgarian castle. And then there's an old man dancing around singing, up from the ashes shall rise the roses of success. That's my story, from the ashes to the roses. I know what it's like to have nothing. I didn't get my first pair of new shoes till I was 19, and then it didn't fit. <laughs> I was sped upon at nine years of age. But I learned early in my life not to let hatred and someone else to beget hatred in me. I learned not to let somebody else's resentment to become my resentment. I did not want any darkness in my life. I didn't want any negatives in my life. When you allow negatives in your life, you disarm yourself. You become blind. You will not see the beauty of Jesus. You will not be able to hear the voice of Jesus. So early in life, I was looking for the light, and I tried to follow the light which I had. Now, yes, I'm a Holocaust survivor. Our parents went through this as adults. They're gone. And now we children are the last ones who can stand before you and say, I was there. And we have one foot in the grave. 
I'm 79 years of age. So you understand that I just got rid of my 10-speed bike, do you? <laughs> no, you don't understand. I just got myself a 16-speed bicycle. So uh, there, actually, there were actually four holocausts, or three holocausts in Germany. First of all, there was the Jewish holocaust, dramatized very much in these days, in which seven or six million Jews were killed. Of those, one and a half were killed in gas chambers. And they were told to uh, strip themselves, men in one building, women in another building, and then they were told to get into a large shower room to get a shower. And they were told to raise their hands up so there would be enough room to pack them in there. And then, instead of water coming out of the shower heads, it was Cyclone B gas. Within a few minutes, they were gone, and then they were cremated. 6,000 a day. Then you had other Jewish people. Many were died by firing squads. And then others were died as they were being picked up by vans. The exhaust gas was channeled into the passenger cabin. Another holocaust we had, which is the forgotten holocaust, in which five million non-Jews perished through hard work and starvation. And those were people like gypsies, homosexuals, Jehovah Witnesses, mentally and physically unfit, pastors and priests, and political dissenters. One time my father was in a restaurant, and uh, at a table next to him, someone remarked, it looks like we're going to lose the war. Immediately, a plainclothes secret servant agent picked him up by the collar and said, you are under arrest. Then there was the Holocaust of the American and British bombings, in which 500,000 civilians, most all women, children, and old people, died. Tens of thousands were burned alive. Tens of thousands were buried under the rubble. And tens of thousands were asphyxiated. When the bombs hit the asphalt, the temperature rose to 1,500 degrees. And the fire sucked up all the oxygen, so before it came to the people, they just collapsed and were gone. So uh, now I want to begin my story with my mother, with a love story of my mother. And here's the background. In 1933, there was an election in Germany and the Germans had three choices. First of all, the Social Democrats, which ran the country for 15 years and created disaster. Unemployment rate was 25%, and people ate out of garbage cans. Secondly, you had the Communist Party to choose from. And then thirdly, you had the brand new Nazi Party to choose from, of which Adolf Hitler was a candidate. Well, Hitler got 44%, and then he kind of bullied his way into the chancellery, and then he declared an emergency and made himself a dictator. But in 
10 years prior to this, he was running for the office and he sped out his anti-Semitic rhetoric all over the country, over the radio and in beer halls and so forth. It was in this anti-Semitic climate that my mother, Ilse, met Rudy. Rudy was the son of a wealthy industrialist and after they had been dating for a while and Rudy was ready to say the big words. But just then his father said, son, you can marry anybody you want to marry, but do not marry a Jew, because that's bad for the business. So my mother went to the bridge the next day to a bridge across the Ulster River to jump to her death. But at the last minute she said, I can't do that, life is sacred. After a while she met Alfred, and this time she was a little smarter. So right from the beginning, she brought her heritage to him, just little by little, carefully, cautiously. And Alfred waited patiently. And when she was done, Alfred put his arms around her. And he said, I always wanted to marry a Jew. He was willing to give up his future in order to be with her and take care of her. Isn't that what love's all about? It's more about giving than taking. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a difficulty in your marriage. So then uh, comes, comes to my time. I was born in 1936. In 1935, the Nazis passed their Nuremberg Laws. And these laws all Germans were classified into three categories. They were, first of all, the Aryans, like my father, who was blonde and blue-eyed, tall and strong. He was the typical ideal German model. And then, secondly, there were the Jews, the full-blooded Jews, like my grandfather. And then there were the people of mixed race, the Mischlinger, Erstegrad, Zweitegrad, Mischling, first and second degree, Mongols. So my mother was classified a first degree Mongol, and I'm a second degree Mongol, and I try to be the best second degree Mongol for Jesus I possibly can. <laughs> no hurt feelings. I have the Lord. So uh, then now, we were destined to, you know, have a similar or same fate as the full-blooded Jews. Now, the Jews were considered to be untermenschen, which is subhumans, and the Aryans were übermenschen, which is supermen, who would be able to conquer the whole world. And the Jews were blamed for having polluted the German blood, for having caused the loss of World War I and for the Great Depression and everything else. So we were the scum of the world. Now then, it's in this environment then that I was raised and I was the first person in our family who was classified racially. So when my, my mother returned from the Nazi office with my racial designation on her, on my birth certificate, she was so shocked and discouraged. Although she never taught us religion, 
she pulled out a Bible and she wrote my name and that date next to Psalm 91, verse 11. And he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. It was like a prophecy. But God knew I was going to be faithful and fulfill my purpose in this life. And he was going to keep me going. And death would not touch me. So uh, shortly after that, my father was called in to the Nazi office. And he told him, you need to divorce your Jewish family. He said, no, thank you. The next day, he lost his job. Following this, we were being bombed by the British at that particular time. My first recollection as a child were the nightly bombings. We lived on the fifth floor of an apartment complex. And night after night, we had to make it to the basement two or three times a night. I survived 1,000 bombing raids. But he will keep his angels, have his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. So uh, the bombings had such an impression upon me that I was being bombed even 10 years after the war was over. I was a pre-med student at the University of Wisconsin, a Christian now, but every night I was still being bombed. I would dream a bomb would come through the roof of that building and go through all the floors and hit me right here on the bridge of my nose and I would wake up in cold sweat. But now I was a Christian and I had the bright idea to ask Jesus to stop the bombings. So I did and the bombings stopped. See, Jesus is not only there to save you from your sins, to get you to heaven, but for everything. You lose a pencil, dishwasher breaks down, why, why fuss with all this? Why not just say, Jesus, please help me here? And he will. He'll help you in mathematics, in science, anything. So uh, now, as we went along, more and more anti-Semitic laws were being passed. And Hitler's plan, first plan, was not to kill the Jews. He came to power in 1933. He had no plans to kill the Jews till after 1940. So the first plan was to drive the Jews out of Germany with an economic boycott. For example, if you were a male businessman, say, say like J.C. Penney, you had to put the name Isaac behind your name, J.C. Penny Isaac. If you were a woman, it would be J.C. Penny Sarah. So that everybody knew who was Jewish, who wasn't. And so people were afraid to go to the Jewish stores because the paramilitary men of Hitler were there to mock you and sometimes to beat you up. So all the Jewish businesses went out of business, went bankrupt. Some Jews left the country, others were hoping things would get better. Also at that time then, uh, people of Jewish descent were not allowed to go to university. And then uh, all the Jewish civil servants were dismissed. And then all the Jewish doctors and nurses were also dismissed. But uh, in some cases, they tried to kind of 
you know, accommodate a Jewish person if they felt he was important. My Aunt Hilde was a nurse, and the day came and she had to sign that she was an Aryan. Everybody had to sign, I'm an Aryan, I'm an Aryan. When it came to her, she says, I'm not an Aryan, I can't sign this, I'm a Jew, I'm proud to be a Jew. So she was dismissed. They said, we'll cover you. Sign it, you're an Aryan, we'll cover you. She says, no, I'm proud to be a Jew. And so a few months later, she escaped to England. She never came back. And then after a while, my grandfather got a business permit to visit England for three days. He went to the harbor with a little briefcase. And what, guess what? He never came back. All my other Jewish relatives went to Argentina. But we were stuck. We had no place to go. So finally, the Nazis came to my dad the third time. And uh, at that time, my father knew uh, the next time they would come, they would probably take our family, his family, with a van some night and uh, pick us up in a van with the exhaust turned inside and that would be it. So we made a secret move, a quick secret move from Hamburg, Germany, to uh, West Germany, from West Germany to East Germany. And uh, it was during this time that I listened to Adolf Hitler the first time. I was only seven years of age, seven, eight years of age. And he always started out real low and slow. And then he always ended up screaming into the microphone. And every message contained that we are going to start a Reich, a government that will last a thousand years. I was only a little kid, but in my heart, in my heart there was a little voice that said, hmm, there must be the seeds of destruction in this government. I was looking for something that would last forever and ever. And at that point, I fell in love with truth. I had no earthly friends, but truth became my best friend. Because truth liberates, truth empowers, truth purifies, and truth touches everything in the universe. It has no beginning, it has no end. So we moved to East Germany, and there Alfred, my father, my father, got a job away from town. I only recall having seen him twice. And uh, while he was away, his landlady stole his food rations. He got thinner and thinner, he got in the hospital, and he died. In those days, we didn't have telephones, so what the hospital did when somebody died, they sent a nurse dressed all in black from the bottom to the top, and everybody knew when that nurse would come, they lost a loved one. My sister said we were all screaming when we saw the nurse dressed in black in the doorway. Our Fatih, our protector against the Nazis, was gone. Now we had four dilemmas. <laughs> the first one was Fatih was dead. The second one was that the Russians were coming. Germany invaded Russia, and in the process, they killed 26 million Russians. They made it all the way, the Germans made it all the way to the gates of Moscow. Then they were driven back. 
And when they came back, they were hot and mad at the Germans. Joseph Stalin, their leader, said, go into Germany, crush the Germans, abuse all the women and the girls, and have fun. That's what they did. So they took the first German town of Nemersdorf. The Germans took it back the next day, and this is what happened. All old men had been clubbed to death, and then uh, all women had been abused. They were tied to barn doors and wagon wheels, and all babies had their heads crushed. That got on the radio within a few weeks. 12 million Germans walked out of their homes into the snow ahead of the Russian advance. We became one of those 12 million people. So that was the second dilemma. Body was dead. The Russians are coming. And now the Jews are being killed in our neighborhood. Here's my mother, a widow, with four kids. The Jews are being killed in our neighborhood. One day a lady came back from a store. She said, I saw a truck go over the railroad tracks. Some skirts fell off the truck. Driver came out. Here they were bloody skirts. She said, what are these skirts all about? They're just dirty, bloody Jewish rags. <laughs> now the next dilemma was the fifth child was born. We did not need a baby at this point. I will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. You had a tragedy here. Some young man, some student just died. Just hold on and trust God. Trust God. So here... Our city got to be filled up with refugees, horse-drawn carriages, open carriages, women with kids and grandmas and grandmas snowing continuously, and all trying to get away from the humiliation of the Russians that they would face. My brother went to the schoolyard, and there were 1,000 uniformed, dead German young men stacked up like cordwood. No place, no time to bury. And finally, the mayor got on the radio. He said, we can only hold the city another 24 hours. But we have a hospital train. They're trying to get out before we give up. And in this train, we have three rows of triple bunk beds. But in between the bunks, we have standing room for refugees. He said, now these are the requirements to get on the train. There must be families of at least three children who had to be orphans or half orphans. Plus, there had to be one infant. My father had to die. The baby had to be born to qualify us to get on the train. I still remember my mother standing in a lovely living room with, and she said to us kids, what shall we do? Shall we go or shall we stay? She was used to daddy fighting to make all the decisions. With a single voice, we said, let's get out of here. And I recall I'm being the most enthusiastic of getting out of there. I grabbed hold of my feather bed, put it in my <laughs> shoulders, and fell backwards. And that's the last laugh we had for a while. 
So they get out, walk out in the snow. All the mother could do is hold the baby. We walked through the deep snow to the railway station, and there we stood all night with no place to sit down. By the morning, we were utterly exhausted, and we finally got on the train. All the soldiers had been loaded. And what was supposed to have taken two hours to get us from there to the Baltic harbor of Danzig, now Gdansk, it took us three days and three nights. No place to lie down. We were jammed in, this, in these cars. Next to me was a soldier who had a head wound. He lay there for two days, dead for two days before they put him out in the snow. We had no food. We had no water. So most of the time the train was stopping and going again because the Germans and Russians fought over the railroad track ahead of us. So we ate snow. And there was no heat. The soldiers were bandaged up with tough toilet paper. No painkillers. So after the third day, we finally arrived at Gdansk, Gdansk at the time. And there we found ourselves in a pocket. The Russians were moving towards Berlin, but we had the Russians on the east of us, on the west of us, on the south of us. We were in this pocket which got smaller and smaller. For every one German tank, there were 10 Russian tanks. And the ammunition supply was cut off to the Germans. And the artillery was shooting into our town and bombs were falling. My brother and I found an empty apartment. People had fled ahead of us. And then we found there was a ship, a freighter, at the harbor taking the refugees to, to try to take them from there, this pocket by sea to West Germany. I told my mother about it, and once again she turned to us children. She wanted to know, shall we go or shall we stay? Because she knew what we didn't know. She didn't tell us that. Just before that, a big German luxury liner with swimming pool and all the good things on it, the Wilhelm Gustler had taken on 10,000 refugees and wounded soldiers. They had been hit by a torpedo from a Russian submarine and sunk. All the lifeboats were frozen in position. Out of the 10,000, 9,500 drowned in the ice-cold waters of the Baltic Sea, six times as many as the Titanic. She knew that, we didn't know that. So we saw a blue sky, a ship, a glittering sea, adventure, but we said, let's get out of here. <laughs> Made it to the harbor. I mean, there was pushing and shoving, panic, and once again, the ticket to get on the ship was a baby. <laughs> His ways are higher than ours. And so many mothers, once they got on with their little ones, they took their baby and threw it to the dock to their relatives so they would have a ticket to get on. And some babies fell in the water between the dock and the ship. No men were allowed on the ship, not a one. Some dressed like women to get on. They were shot by the SS immediately, shot by the SS, and their bodies were hung on lampposts 
there in the harbor. So a minesweeper took a ship out on the sea, and uh, people were lying down. We put down in layers and rows and body to body on the steel riveted floor. It was a freighter, not a passenger ship. And there was one hammock in this large room that happened to be that it was assigned to me and my two brothers. And I got to be in the middle, and my brothers got on top of me, so it's the closest I've been to them all my life. <laughs> on front of the ship, they put some, some boards down in front of the ship by the bow, and sailors would be on these boards with long poles. And as we were going along, they were gently pushing the mines out of the way for three days of travel. When we got to the West German harbors, they were mine shut by the Russians, so the ship took us to Copenhagen, Denmark. And this is where my sister, baby sister, died of starvation with 1,000 other babies. And they were buried in a box, four to six to a box, under the banner of the swastika. We were put onto boxcar trains and uh, rode a few hours. And then when the sliding doors opened up, we saw bar wire, watchtowers, soldiers, machine guns, and German shepherd dogs. So we spent the next two years in a detention camp. 36,000 people and uh, 17 people in one room. <laughs> and I'll tell you, nobody in that room ever complained in two years, not a one. We were all thankful for the basics. And what are the basics? Well, we had feet with which to walk. We had hands with which to handle. We had eyes with which to see, ears by which to hear, and the brain that is functioning. And we got away from the Russians. Are you thankful for the basics? We lost everything three times or four times, but we always had the basics. We always thankful for the basics. No complaining. Even though the bread was green, Every day we just cut off the mold. No fighting with the last bowl of soup, nothing. And so uh, <laughs> the first year, we boys, not me, but the other boys, I should say, they carved chess figures out of trees. And so I played chess six days a week. Want to play chess with me? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then uh, also, during that first Christmas, it was my first memorable, wonderful Christmas I ever had. My sister, while I was outside, my sister was sewing a Nazi, out of Nazi uniform, she was sewing me a soccer ball. She hung the blankets down, we had two bunks for a family of five, a little area, and then she was sewing away at it. I was probably the only guy in the whole camp that ever got a Christmas gift during that time. That's love, isn't it? You don't need to be wealthy to experience love. You can experience love at any level. And you don't need to be wealthy to experience laughter and happiness. So we boys get out there, kicking around that soccer ball, 
in a few minutes, the rags were over the trees. What do, we think, what do you think I did? We all laughed. Sure. So uh, the second year, beginning of the second year, the parents got together and said, our kids are wasting away. They need an education. We lost one year now. Let's start elementary school, high school, and university. We had no textbooks. We had no notebooks. We had no pencils. But we did have lice and fleas <laughs> and bedbugs and mice, yeah. One morning I woke up and, wow, next to me was a dead mouse there. <laughs> I must have turned over too fast. Sorry about that. So now, the first thing, of course, the school was in a barrack. You have a school problem here, don't you? The bond issues coming up? Yeah, piece of cake. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it, but from where I came from, it's a piece of cake. You can make it through it. You have the Lord. So anyhow, we... Uh, um, we were instructed. The first thing that I learned in, the, in school was, had to learn school, was a great German hymn, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott, ein gute Wehr und Waffen. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Wow. That's the first time my mind turned toward God. Who is God? Where is he? What is this all about? Now you see, in, in Germany... There's religious education in every school. In every school, there's one hour a week of religious education where you learn about the Bible, you learn about God, about Jesus, to this very day. All the way during the Hitler period, it was always there. There's no separation of church and state. Most all pastors are paid by the government. They get their salary from the government. All Catholic priests get paid by the government. So, uh, well, from there, we were released. Uh, after two years, we got out of prison. I'm in out of detention camp and back in Hamburg. And once again, we stayed in the barrack. And this was a very cold time. We had no heat. We had a broken window and all this. So we spent 23 hours a day in bed for several weeks, most of the days for several weeks. And uh, here, here's my mother, <laughs> Mutti. So we were chowering away, you know, and she had, the, she had the audacity to say, children, don't we have it good? <laughs> we said, what's that all about? She said, this is the first time we as a family are in one room together. Yeah, Moody's right. Not 17, but just our family had one room together. <laughs> so uh, my mother was a real hero. She was a uh, gentle. She was a fox. She was an educator. And she demanded total obedience. Yeah. 
I got it. Bob, when I was in elementary school, every time a teacher would come into class, even in elementary school, we had to jump out of the seats and do the headlock salute. So anyhow, I wasn't always that obedient. <laughs> so uh, what she did, she uh, took the iron poker out of the coal-burning stove and she chased me around the dining room table. Well, she was running out of anger. I ran for my life, so I won. <laughs> Every time I won. And then, you know, as the years went by, my legs got taller than hers, longer than hers, so she had no chance. But I got the message. I learned to obey. She was uh, a woman who would not allow us to make excuses. I remember my first excuse I made, and it was disastrous. But it had a good outcome. And uh, we start high school at 12. We finished at 16. So at 12 years of age, I had to go down a cobblestone dam, 45-minute walk to school. And, and uh, I got into a tremendous thunderstorm. I was just soaking wet, no time at all. So I went back to the basement where we lived, and I expected some sympathy. And here my mother had telescoped herself into a 10-foot spitting, fire-spitting dragon. She says, you good for nothing never amount to anything and all the rest of it as a pool, a puddle formed around my feet on the hardwood floor. As a wet rag, I made myself into my closet where I slept on straw and I pulled the bed sheet over my head so the mice wouldn't run over my face and I thought and I thought and I thought. We didn't have electronics to distract us. We became thinkers. And I said, Mutti is right. And I decided there and then never to make an excuse anywhere, anytime, again, the rest of my life. And that's carried over my prayer life. No excuse for not praying in the morning, reading the Bible, and being faithful to Jesus. Then uh, I also decided that I'm going to prove to my mother that I would amount to something. And the day came when she was proud of me. So she was uh, always thankful. When she died in a retirement home in Milwaukee, she, uh, the nurses, all the staff, was they were all weeping at the desk. They saw people die all the time. But they never saw anybody die in that place who didn't complain and complain. How does nursing homes, you know? It's an easy place to complain. She never once complained. She always said, thank you, thank you, in a German, thank you very much, thank you very much, thank you very much. <laughs> and then she was as smart as a fox. We got to get hungry, and so she was sliding through the iron curtain all the communist security guards with an English bag of tea to trade it for a bag of potatoes. She went from house to house, farmhouse to house, for three successive days till she got the bag of potatoes. She came back, all smiles. She never allowed us to blame anybody else or any circumstance for our failures. She always taught us, you be a conqueror over your circumstances 
and never blame anybody else. Take the blame yourself if you're worthy to be blamed. And that's it. So yes, when my mother died, she didn't leave us one red cent. She gave all the money to charities. <laughs> and then she gave her body to Marquette University Medical School for research. But although she didn't give us one cent, she gave us more than what it means to have character than people who leave millions of dollars behind for their children. Thank the Lord. So now, back in Hamburg, we, uh, of course, we saw all the destruction of the city. 72% of the city was down. All our neighbors were killed by the bombs. And then, one day I decided to take my bicycle, old bicycle, into the forest. I wanted to get away from the destruction. And so as I got in the forest, I had no tent, I had no blanket. I covered myself with pine branches for the night. And the morning ants were calling up my legs that woke me up. And Nightingale sang a beautiful song. And then the golden beams of the sun came through the birch trees. And a voice spake to me in perfect German. And a voice said, Ich liebe dich, ich liebe dich, ich bin liebe. Beautiful. I love you. I love you. I am love. And then the same voice said, All the destruction you see is not of me, but of man's and humanity to man. Let's take a break. We go on from there.
If you go through this door and turn left and keep going, you'll see a water fountain there if you're thirsty. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I got a picture of here. Oh, wow, was, look was, at that. I was uh, stationed in Germany, and I was a photographer. Oh, wow. I didn't take the picture, yeah. but I worked with a German All right, if we could be seated at this time, please. Before Brother Schultz begins again, we're going to uh, listen as well as sing the great hymn that he made reference to, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Heidi, why don't you just go ahead and put the first stanza up on the screen at this time, but we won't sing it right away. They're gonna, we'll have the piano and the trumpet, and then we'll, after that we'll stand, and I'll lead you in the next four verses, and maybe we can be thinking about what we've heard in light of this great hymn. Thank you. Oh. 
and a kindred Let's put an let's put an amen on there. Amen. Wow. <laughs> wow. While we're standing, let me pray. Unser Vater, der du bist im Himmel, geheiligt sei dein Name, dein Wille geschehe, dein Königreich komme. Gib uns heute unser tägliches Brot. Hilf uns in der nächsten halben Stunde von dir zu lernen. In den Namen Jesus Christus. Amen. May be seated. At 13, I heard somebody say to me for the first time, not even my mother said, I love you at 13. Now, you don't have to get under pine branches to know that God loves you. He loves every one of you. Now, three years passed by. As I said, we start high school at 12, we finish at 16. I went to an all-boys high school. And I had the corner seat, the tall guys in the back. Next to me was Siegfried. He was the fastest 100-meter sprinter in Germany. And then there was Günther. He was the second fastest. Can you imagine when we were running 
When they hit 100 meters, I was at 50. Very embarrassing. Anyhow, uh, during the last year, in fact, the last few months of the last year, my professor presented Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. I was the shyest boy in an all-boys high school, hadn't said a word, a word in four years. When he presented Darwin to me, I felt it was an intellectual insult, uh, insult on my brain. And secondly, there was the inner voice. The inner voice said, wrong. I always went by the moral compass, by the light I have inside of me. John the Baptist said of Jesus, this is a light. Jesus is a light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That's what I went by. I recall one time uh, the answers to the history examination were smuggled under the benches and finally came to me in my corner. And the inner light said, no. And I said, no, secret, I don't want it. You follow a beam of light, what does it take you? To the Son of Righteousness, the Almighty God. So uh, after the professor was done with Darwin, he said, is there anybody in class who would like to dispute the Darwinian theory? I exploded. <laughs> I just the shyest boy in the, all the school. I just said a word. I exploded the truth of me inside of me. Divine truth. All truth is divine. All truth is of God. And exploded like a volcano. And I said, Ich muss morgen dagegen sprechen. There it is. And I was petrified. I hadn't prepared. I mean, this is not of me. This is the truth exploding. I was petrified. And the class was electrified. <laughs> Finally, after four years, Schultz is going to say something. <laughs> oh, you know, and, and I wish tomorrow would never come. And they, they could hardly wait for tomorrow to come. Jesus says you have the whole science out tomorrow. Now I was on an entirely new journey for the rest of my life. So I ran home, walked home up the cobblestone road to our apartment, and I said, uh, Oma Mutti, I said, do you have a Bible? Yeah, she said she had an old Bible. And uh, I was going to be a scientist, so I looked around, and there was a recently published book which is a revelation, right? The end of the book is always the most up-to-date. <laughs> I lasted five minutes, was totally confused. I said, God, God, you got me into this, whoever you are, God. You're going to have to carry me through. I'm going to go to bed, have a good night's sleep, plan to be embarrassed, and go on with life. That's it. So the next day I stood before the class, I mean, just totally empty-headed. And they all looked at me. I looked at them. <laughs> Seemed like hours passed by. And finally I said, Es kann nicht sein, es kann nicht sein, es muss einen Gott geben, es muss einen Gott geben. Cannot be, it cannot be, there must be a God. There must be a God. First sermon ever preached. No other words came to me. I made my way back to the corner as I was sliding into the bench 
the glory of God came all around me. I didn't even have the word glory in my vocabulary. I didn't know any religious vocabulary. The glory of God came all around me. Well, I've been wondering, here I'm graduating. I'm not ready for life. I'm not ready for life. I don't know where I came from. I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know where I'm going when I die. I'm not ready. I'm just like a frog. He doesn't know where he came from, why he's here, where he's, where he's going, and he dies. And so then God spake to me in the glory, and he said to me, I will give you the answers to the questions of origin, purpose, and destiny. And I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. From that point on, I ran up the street every day after school, and I opened the Bible, I read the Bible, and I prayed to the unknown God, yet known but yet not known. And I read this book, the Bible, for six months and got nothing out of it. But I persevered. I persevered. I persevered. I wanted to know God. Finally, in the last month, I found two scripture verses that helped me. One was, ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock it shall be opened unto me. I said, God, here's one German who's doing all these things, asking, seeking, knocking. If you're real, Jesus, you better answer me. <laughs> and where do you think I found the other verse? In Revelations. <laughs> 320. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and have fellowship with him and he with me. That's it. I knew Jesus was standing at the door of my heart, but I didn't know how to go about it to get this all done. And so I got to visit my Jewish grandfather in England. The last day I was there, I received a postcard from a British evangelist who had a Bible conference center in Northern England. Well, this was a very dangerous situation. In Germany at the time, in Germany, when you, it's, you had to be in the top one-third in elementary school, and then you had to go through six days of oral and written examination and come out on the top one-third to go to high school. And then, then they drop out the bottom one-third. <laughs> so I figured if I'd be late for school, I might be out. So I wanted God more than anything else. Nothing mattered but God and God only. So I wrote a postcard to my professor, dear Mr. Nikolai, I'm sorry I'll be late for school, but in compensation, I will offer to give a speech in the English language on my return, Reimer Schulze. <laughs> and I went to this castle up in Northern England. Two Germans tried to convert me. I wanted to be converted. <laughs> Didn't have the right way about it, so. The evangelist had me come to his office, and I knelt down and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart, and he did. 
Hallelujah. The next day I made my way back to Germany. I was supposed to meet my grandfather in Liverpool. We missed each other. He had money. I had no money. I just had tickets. I had no money to buy food, nothing. And so here was in London. An announcement was made on the radio station, uh, over the radio and the, and the railroad station. All travelers bound for Europe, for the continent, have to spend the night in London. There's a big storm in the British Channel, and we can't get the ferries going over there for, for this day. I look ragged. I, I, you know, here, I didn't know what to do. You know, when you become a Christian, it doesn't take long, and God will test you. He'll test you. It's not pie in the sky. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. His ministry began with him being severely tempted and tested. So here, I looked around and I prayed, and there I saw a bunch of Bavarian young people, you know, from South Germany, when the Alps were not bombed, coming through the railroad station, a whole pack of them. And the Lord says, get in the middle of them. They all look nice. Look at that. My man, my pants were legs up this way, coat was up this way. And so I went with them in the underground train on the group ticket. And wherever they went, I went with them, you know, got out of the station, you know, after so many stops, we got back on the ground, back on the street. And the next recollection I have is I stood on the second floor in an old house with an old white-haired lady. And she said, there's your bed. Spent the night there, got up in the morning, and all of a sudden, I was at the main station in front of the train going down to Southampton. How did I get there? I had no ticket. There was subway. I didn't know anybody. Christianity is supernatural. <laughs> Hallelujah. We have taken the supernatural out of Christianity. That's why we don't attract people. So then the uh, train took us down to Southampton to get on the ferry. And then uh, we were still in a pretty bad storm. And I was hanging over the rail because I got seasick. Being a third-class passenger, I couldn't go down to the ship. I had to stay on top. It was raining. And I tried to relieve myself, and nothing would come up. Oh, it was a miserable feeling. And then the devil talked to me. <laughs> Enoch didn't know there was a, didn't have a Bible, did he? Enoch? No one didn't have a Bible, but they knew there was a devil. Yeah. So the devil talked to me out of the Black Sea, and he said, Schultze, how do you like being a Christian? And I said, you old devil. If I were going to hell, I would talk about Jesus till you spit me out of there. <laughs> there I signed a marriage contract with Jesus. I will be faithful for better or for worse. I'm going to stick with it. There I took out the reverse gear. Have you taken out your reverse gear yet? 
where going back or quitting is not an option anymore to be considered. And I have, to, I have not had to use oh, the reverse gear since that time. So I was told I need to witness for Jesus, pray, read the Bible, obey God. So I came home and I witnessed my mother. And my mother, dear mother, she gave me a cold shoulder. Lord, help me. Then I witnessed to my scoutmaster. I had a scouting troop. And uh, Dr. Bertner, I said, Doctor, in the Lutheran Church, Dr. Bertner, I have some good news. I just received Jesus in my heart. He said, Blasphemy! Blasphemy! And you know, I had wonderful peace inside of me. <laughs> wonderful peace. Jesus said to me, This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. See, he believed that, you know, a holy God cannot and will not dwell in sinful man. That's true. But my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. So he has take residency in me, glory to God. Then uh, a few weeks later, all the gray heads of Hamburg, Germany, about 15, 20 scoutmasters, sat around the table with me. And he said, show me, give me your, show me your scouting license. I gave it to them. He said, you'll never see it again. I was excommunicated from the Christian Boy Scout movement of Germany because I said I received Jesus in my heart. And then, in a few weeks, I found another young man. And him and I started an underground Christian Boy Scout movement, and they called it Dieter's Bonhoeffer. All right, summing it all up now, then uh, got a job in a factory, uh, I learned the machinist trade, and then in July 19, 1955, my mother, my young brother and me, we got on the airplane and flew away to come to the land of opportunity, the United States of America. I didn't have one cent in my pocket. <laughs> July 19th, 19, 1955, July 20, I got my job, and instantly I made six times as much money as I did in Germany. So now, can you see the picture? Up from the ashes shall rise the roses of success. Never lose hope. Hold on to hope. God can do miracles. It's his business. And you have a purpose in your life. All of you have a purpose in your life. A glorious divine purpose. You're not just chemistry. You have a living soul. And thirdly, make the right choices. And you will not only have joy and peace and love in this life, so much the more in the life to come. Out of the ashes shall grow the roses of success. Go for it. Thank you. 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 Thank
Thank you for your love and kindness. I wish I could take a picture of you and put it on the billboard in I-70 <laughs> with these happy faces. Thank you. You know, it's a wonderful thing when, when you can bring um, your favorite people together. And, uh, I, of course, uh, loved my daddy all my life, and I haven't been able to share him very much with you, and, and I absolutely adore all of you, and um, I can't tell you how much I love Fayetteville and, and Fayette County. So to have you both in the same room <laughs> so awesome. And I think it, it helps you know me better, too, to, to know my heritage. And, um, and uh, I just thank you for taking the time to come out. And thank you that for what's happening in our community, that we're coming together and that we care about each other and we're getting to know each other. And we're pursuing uh, God and love and, and searching for the right answers together. I think it's a beautiful thing. I want to finish with the song, um, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, because I think I think that's kind of a good fitting end that uh, you are uh, have found peace and to um, it's it speaks for itself really. So this is my friend Lauren, and uh, Perry Kaiser was uh, the young woman that played the violin at the beginning, and I'm so grateful for her giving us her talent and time. If it's not well with your soul, there's a number of people here that would love to listen, to talk, to pray with you, and um, don't be shy. With peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea.
to join us? It is well, it is well, with my soul, with my soul, it is well, it is well, with my soul, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well. It is well. died, my mother went to his desk drawer. She found two loaded revolvers. He was made the Nazis at the door over his dead body. Greater love has no man but that he gives his life for his friends. And pray for me. I've got seven more speeches to give this week, the next five days. Starting, leaving tomorrow at seven o'clock for some school or eight. <laughs> I need prayer. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Wasn't that great? Oh, glory to God. That was food, spiritual food for the soul. God loves us all the same. And it's not wishy-washy, is it? This was not a wishy-washy story. It was, it was deep, strong. I just want to say before we go, there's a table out front just to the left of the entrance where uh, Pastor Schultze, he's written his autobiography, I Am Love, and it'll be available for sale. He has, that was his second book, his first book, Abiding in Christ, is like a de year-long devotional book based on his writings, his call to obedience newsletter that he's put out now for 30 or 40 years. And there'll be other literature out there. Bruce is standing in the door. He'll man that table. Now, I wasn't, I was running back and forth, so I don't know. I see some of you have them. There were some black wristbands that were passing out. Thank you. They're very good. My wife has more there, standing over there. If you want one, it says on there, hope, purpose, and choices, the three points of his testimony. And there's a website on there that we made that has the story typed up, the story, the first part of this, the first half of his, what he shared with us tonight. That's what he'll be sharing in the school, is that first half. And 
You can read it. There'll be a PowerPoint. There'll be a slideshow on there. You can look at the pictures. And there will be a link on that website to schultze.org, his website that has various discipleship materials. And you can purchase the book later or online and other I think is your testimony on there uh, yes. in audio. Yeah. yeah. So you can get one of those wristbands if you haven't got one, and it can link you over to that website. Esther, is there anything else we need to mention before we close? Thank you for that yes, thank you very much. All right. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, look at me laugh. We ought to take up an offering. <laughs> right? That, um, the purpose of the offering is to cover the expenses of this tour. Uh, Pastor Schultze is up here for the week. He will be in every middle school and every high school in Fayette County. Isn't that wonderful? Telling a story. He's, he, already went to, he already went to Meadow Bridge on Friday where he was graciously received enthusiastically received it. The mm. providence of God was so in evidence there because the eighth graders had just finished a Holocaust unit and they had studied poetry, they had done music, they took a field trip to Washington DC and visited the Holocaust Memorial and so now they ha and they're doing a play tomorrow, there's some play with some Holocaust theme to it and they've been told now for weeks a Holocaust survivor is coming here to tell you. They said, when's he coming? When's he coming? And I was, I was excited. I, it was like in their, L, their version of their LMC, and they didn't have a sound system. And I thought, oh, I don't want him to strain his voice on the first day, you know. So I got our sound system going, and this jock came up and said, is there something going on? I said, yeah, my father-in-law is going to speak. He's a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was excited about it. So, but, you know, there's going to be trips. There's going to be meetings with people and talking with people. And uh, if we would like to ask if you could share in the blessings this to help support this time. And, uh, uh, helps with the wristbands, the website, and the going, uh, going out. We, had, uh, we ordered, I think it's 3,000 or 3,500 of these black wristbands to give to all the students, including as many students as possible who, were who are not going to be able to hear him personally because some, it's just certain grades in, depending on the school. But we want to just give it out in case the word of mouth spreads that others can read about it if they can't get there. And there's teachers who want to get there, but they're not able to come. They won't be able to come, so this way they can read about it too. So you pray for it that, you know, we'll, the Lord will bless it and help it. We have to be careful and cautious and respectful in the public schools of how, we pre, how he presents his story. But the Lord can help him, and the word of God is not bound. God knows his love. See, we don't know how many kids and how many teachers are in a Holocaust right now. Hmm. Hmm. You know, we, we don't have to look very far, do we? And so uh, they're in the personal one. And if one person could think, there's hope and I have a purpose and I'm going to make some choices. Hmm. Well, that would be worth it. Well, to Jesus, that would be worth the whole world. Amen. Robert, to Jesus. Uh, right after he spoke at Meadowbridge High School, um, a little girl raised her hand, and she said, your story makes me feel like we have hope. 
How much is that worth? It was worth the whole thing. choir like you every day. <laughs> My favorite, one of the favorite things in the world is leading the singing. We're going to stand, we're going to sing that because I want to hear that sound again. I never had such a time hearing a mighty fortress is our God. I tell you, God, you sang it out of your heart and I loved it. And t Bill, your trumpet was the best I've ever heard it. And I, I appreciate it. I, he practices, he practices, he practices, but there was something more in that trumpet than practice. As great as that was, you know, it was God. Let's stand together and we'll sing the chorus. We'll start, well, we're just going to do it good old gospel style and start out slow and sing it out. In my heart there rings a melody, there rings a melody with heaven's harmony. In my heart there rings a melody, there rings a melody of love. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I am complete now. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Glory to God. Thank you. God bless you. And may he be with you. And, and any of you that don't know what to do, I pray that these words will stay with you and help you. And maybe they'll help someone else. If, it's, if you are the only one that it makes a difference, it's all worthwhile. Thank you. You're dismissed.